It's the end of our second day together with the various delights and difficulties of this kind of just facing the stuff of inner life in the rather direct and naked way that we've been doing. And there have doubtless been moments uh, of those of delight, mm. being touched by the environment. Sometimes the delight in a moment of a particular sensitivity or lightness of being, in a, uh, in the sense of intimacy with experience that we've been cultivating. And sometimes those moments don't get enough uh, emphasis in Dharma teachings. It's important to let ourselves actually just savour moments when there's no difficulty. And those moments may be more than you notice. We're kind of hardwired to really notice difficulty and danger and drama and uh, you know the things that uh, activate what's sometimes called the fight flight freeze response and those things impact us much more strongly actually and it's recently been starting to measure this neurologically they impact us about five times more powerfully and maybe some of you have uh, been to see Rick Hansen uh, when he's been in London, uh, who's a Dharma teacher, who's also a neuroscientist, and are familiar with the way he's studied and speaks about this stuff. He speaks about it as if our brains are wired like, like Teflon for pleasant experiences. It just, it just slides off, non-stick, and wired like Velcro for unpleasant experiences for danger it's, you know hardwired evolutionarily it's kind of helpful to to have one's attention really stimulated when there's something dangerous although we're in the, the life that most of us are leading we're probably not actually very often genuinely stimulated by that kind of danger or threat level and yet we've still got the uh, the, the wiring, if you like, that's the product of our evolutionary process, where we tend to notice and make much of our difficulty. And the moments of non-difficulty slide by. In fact, sometimes we're so unused to it, we so don't notice where there's moments of non-difficulty, that when they arise, <coughs> we get a little anxious. Oh, where's my difficulty gone? We're so used to telling ourselves our own hard luck story. And you might just notice for yourself the, the kind of the narrative as you reflect back on your day, the narrative of the day. And of course it may be that there's been abiding with the quality of ease, spaciousness, openness, appreciation, delight feeling held in and delighted by the sincerity of your practice, the support of the environment of your and of each other. Maybe. Isn't it so wonderful? And just to let oneself bathe in that. 
and maybe that there's been moments of dissatisfaction, of struggle, of confusion, of tiredness, <coughs> of physical discomfort, etc. And if that's the case, just to notice how easily they become the narrative. As if that's what my practice is. And, some, and in moments of difficulty, people will often come to me and say that they're in constant, is the word they often use, in constant pain, constant confusion, constant busyness of mind. Whatever the problem is, we make it constant. But in fact, no, nothing's constant, right? And if you're labouring under the delusion of constant difficulty, it can be really, really helpful, really important, really relieving to break up the illusion of that constancy by noticing <coughs> the moments of non-difficulty. That rest after lunch. Oh. Let your body feel the non-difficulty, unless you've overeaten. It might be a moment of difficulty. And to let yourself feel the moments of ease, the moments of a simple enjoyment, the moments where the mind isn't engaged in grasping for something that it wants, or struggling with, pushing away, fighting with something it doesn't want. And nor is it just lost in space, roaming round hopelessly, helplessly, vaguely. The moments of the simple abiding, letting it let those stand out. And Often, that's kind of as much as we need to do with those moments. Those moments of ease and spaciousness, they don't need a lot of investigation. There's nothing to be figured out there. Actually, they need to be allowed, enjoyed, rested in. Simple. The only other kind of attention they need is sometimes afterwards, as the ease fades to be wary of the assumptions and attachments that go with it. Where is it gone? Why isn't it like that anymore? In other words, as we slide back into our hard luck story. I want it to be like that again. Last last time I came on retreat, I had this or that experience. Why can't I have that again? It's a... So, so much for the moments of delight, and we'll touch on them more as the day goes by, days as the days go by. But of course, what gets a lot more attention in this practice are the moments of struggle, and sometimes that's one of the that's one of the confusions that's levelled at uh, these kind of teachings. It seems like they keep going on about suffering. And if that's true, it's because those tend to be the things that need our attention. Moments of non-difficulty, moments of ease, moments of delight, they're not the ones that trouble us. So 
In other words, it's interesting that the Buddha describes this as a path of happiness. We might just reflect on that as we've gone through the day. And the encouragement to practice in a happy way, to enjoy one's practice, to be uh, grounded in the recognition of one's good fortune, to be attending to heart and mind, to be exploring one's experience for the purposes of freeing it up. What good fortune! The good fortune of our material circumstances that mean we are able to be here and practice in this way. The good fortune of the support of friends or families or colleagues that have taken over maybe some of our uh, usual duties so that we can be here. So... We have that uh, opportunity to notice those moments of goodness, to bathe in those moments of goodness. And then we have the opportunity to to, uh, explore the the rest. What I sometimes call the demands and defences and distractions that easily characterise uh, well, that do that are the movements that characterise our moments of of friction with life. The ways, basically, that we in in um, gross ways, maybe, but sometimes just in very very subtle ways, the ways that we reject this moment, this experience, in favour of some. Um, some attempt to have something else happen. And sometimes that, that uh, functions through a kind of reaching out and making a demand, the idea of what I'd like to be happening. Whether that's you know, the end of the meditation, wanting the bell to ring, whether it's some elaborate uh, sexual fantasy, whether it's uh, you know, subtle or gross. Basically, reaching out as if, oh, oh. And for some of us, that's our style. Right? The way we leave ourselves is in the pursuit of what I want. Now, some of us, that's our predominant style, but hey, we all know that, right? And for some of us, our predominant style is just a kind of checking out, just going vague. It's like, oh, sitting, breathing. Just, oh, I, know, I, don't, I know this now. I've sat here and I've breathed. And we just go roaming around, just looking for any old distraction. And for some of us, that kind of spacing out is our predominant style. And at the same time, all of us know that. And then the third way we get into friction with things, if it's not uh, wanting something that's not here, or it's not just kind of going vague and unconscious then we get into friction by the rejection of, the resistance to something that is here that we don't like. And for some of us, that's our predominant style. Some people have an extraordinarily finely honed skill to find something that's... to always find something that's wrong. 
and we can then complain about what's wrong and we feel indignant about what's wrong and self-righteous about what's wrong and we can build a very strong, very good-sounding case to ourselves. And for some people, that's the predominant style and at the same time we all know that. And that's the, that's the style I'd like to explore a little more tonight. Because, you know, it's, even though your retreat is utterly unique and your experience is utterly special and personal to you, you know what? There are some fairly broad waves of commonality that run through retreats. And the day two is often day where some of that uh, resistance is to be found. The, the, the common names, the names of the tradition, and the tradition tends to call these things what they are. I've been calling them demands, defences and distractions as a way to find them in our experience, that feeling of, being, of demanding, that sense of, uh, being de- of being, feeling defensive, of pushing away. And the tradition just calls that hatred. And it's not a very glamorous word. We don't like to, again, it's not what we put on the posters, right? Come to a retreat at Gaia House and explore your hatred. <laughs> we, what we see very often on the posters is stuff about wisdom and compassion. And we like that more. But the Buddha was very clear in pointing out this, that uh, the wis- actually wisdom and compassion don't need Uh, cultivation wisdom and compassion take care of themselves wisdom and compassion emerge naturally as innate qualities of a clear mind of a free heart when there's not when there's not the demands and defenses and distractions when there's non not a kind of reactive friction with life then the space that opens up is filled with wisdom clarity sensitivity response kind of lightness of being. A, a, a wish to be close to what's happening. A natural intimacy with, with what's here. A closeness to, an interest in, a care for whoever's with us. We fool ourselves into thinking that we're, being, we're becoming wise and compassionate. Actually, what we're asked to is to look rather um, directly at all the other stuff that's in the way. So that wisdom, compassion, care, sensitivity, joy, ease can kind of flourish by themselves. It's too much work for us to be wise and compassionate. We do a lousy job. That's what I found from a few decades of looking at my experience. I'm an expert in greed, hatred and delusion. That the sense of self, the conventional sense of self is very good at producing those things. So let me look at those, let me take care of those. And as they thin out, as the reactivity dissolves, as we see through them, as we don't pick up the heat of anger so much, as we don't believe in the self-righteousness 
of what I think and what I know and what I want so much. Oh. And the relief of that is one in which a, a wise response, a compassionate response, a free response to life kind of happens by itself. It fills the space that was hitherto occupied by me and my story and my needs and my thoughts and my wishes and my, 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 my stuff. So, we're invited to look at our anger, our hatred, our resistance, our rejection. And the, 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 the number one important thing with, with that kind of exploration is that we set aside our judgment of it. The idea that somehow it's, it's, you know, now I'm doing this spiritual stuff. I shouldn't be angry. Right? The sense that we, the tendency to sweep the hatred under the meditation mat. And you see that all the time around Buddhism. Buddhism has a bad case of, um, of <laughs> stuffing things under the meditation mat. You know, and you can you can tell that sort of fakey Buddhist nicey <laughs> thing where everyone's uh, doing their best to produce a facsimile of wise and peaceful and kind, and uh, that's why you see the the festering politics that go on sometimes in uh, places, not particularly in Gaia, not in Gaia House, obviously, <laughs> but in uh, in centres where people are. Are so busy trying, and very sincerely, of course, trying to be wise and kind, and uh, which is you know, beautiful as part of our practice. We want to be kind, we want to be sensitive, and yet where there's a kind of orthodoxy of niceness, an orthodoxy of kindness that doesn't leave any room for people to explore anger, hatred, rejection, resistance. Or when it, and so that when it arises, it feels like this shouldn't be part of my experience. We don't see it reflected as around us. So there I might be feeling uh, resistant and furious about something on my cushion. I look around, oh, everyone else looks serene. As if I'm the only um, you know, sociopathic uh, one here. So I'm, I'm mentioning it in these terms partly just to normalise it. To, to do this work is to look at our anger up close. To look at our hatred up close. And, you know, um, meditation practice is like putting your normal life experience under a microscope. You get to see it up close. Things get magnified. So even in a simple environment like this, where one could say, well, there's not much to provoke one's anger here, right? Everyone, we're living harmoniously. We're being fed and sheltered. Weather is good. We're floating around from one activity to another. Very nice. And yet, and as one of the two of the sniggers may be tell, and yet, 
My God, we can find a lot to get uptight about. <coughs> a friend, a well-known Dharma teacher actually, who in um, spending time in the monastery in Thailand was rather shocked to see how the little things would niggle him so much that he would get angry about the fact that his bowl was uh, not as shiny as the other people's bowls. That you know, just, He just found a whole catalogue and he went to the teacher and sort of sputtering his, his uh, resistance to all this stuff. And the teacher asked him to go and sit in his hut, close all the doors and windows, put on all his layers of clothing. And this is like, you know, 45 degrees, steamy, Thai jungle. And sit there for the rest of the day. <laughs> contemplate his anger. So we're invited to look at our anger up close. And that means, like I say, first off, not judging it, letting it in, letting it be something that we're interested in. Can you be interested in the way you reject your experience? Because it's really important to be... If you can't get interested in it, you'll keep on rejecting. And as I, as I said earlier, there's the kind of classically those three responses. Right? The three different styles with anger. Fight, flight, freeze. Fight, some of us are kind of... We get hot, indignant, we blame. Right? We find somebody whose fault it is. And uh, we might notice that, like even just as I say, in this simple, harmonious being together here. But uh, somebody's, the way somebody moves, the way somebody sniffs, the way somebody doesn't quite put their shoes together. That was one that got me on a retreat in India once. And first, I was very particular. I read in a book once about mindfulness practice. If someone's really mindful, they're mindful in every moment, and they're mindful as they take their shoes off going into the meditation hall. So I thought, right, well, that's me. I'm a good student. Take my shoes off every time left nicely, close together. But that guy, what's the matter with him? Just made it into a whole trip for myself. And the sense of how right we are, right in that in that mode of uh, blaming, of wanting to lash out. Sometimes revenge fantasies arise out of that as well. You know, we're doing the best to give the nice Buddhist calm exterior, but that one who's sniffing. Meanwhile, we're imagining ourselves, <laughs> right? So again, I say this to normalize it. It's actually important not to throttle the one next to, but to, to let, and that's what we'll get to as we explore. It's important to allow yourself. You can't explore uh, the way uh, rejection of your experience arises, the, way, the, the heat and intensity of anger without letting yourself have it. And you can't let yourself have it if it's some secret source of shame. If you're afraid of it, that's one of the things we get with anger, particularly the, that outward flow of it. It's like the, so the, from the 
fight mode, the one that wants to blame, than the flight mode, the one that's afraid of anger. Afraid of what might happen if I let myself feel it. Afraid of what might happen if I actually acknowledge that I'm, that I'm feeling uh, uh, furious or um, uh, that I've got some whole story scenario going on. The one who's the tendency to be conflict averse. The one who, as soon as there's some tension around us, it's like, get me out of here. That finds the, that uh, to be threatening. And then there's the freeze response, where we just, the, where again the, the sense of anger is threatening, and so we just kind of we just kind of try and keep it down, just tension. It's like we just try and contain it, shut it off. We sort of it burns inwardly without having any uh, outlet. And then there's also the what we might call the, the it's a little different to all those three, which are the classic responses, right? Fight, flight, and freeze. And then there's also I'm trying to think of another F, but it doesn't quite come to mind. Uh, I don't know, but it's we might call this the meditator's strategy, which is a way of calling it out. We can get skillful after a certain amount of practice that whatever arises, we can just kind of, we can sort of let it cool out in the body. We know how to attend to sensation, we know how to move into sensation and around, we know how to soften around sensation, we know how to direct our sensation, our attention to a kind of a, a broader sphere. So it cools out the intensity and the, the feeling subsides. And one can get quite skillful at that kind of dissolution of intense reactive states. But learning to dissolve them isn't the same as learning to resolve them. One can call it out in the moment, but it doesn't, it doesn't uproot the pattern. It doesn't stop it from, re, uh, from re-emerging, from reconfiguring the next time there's a trigger. So we're asked to actually get to know that movement of anger. And you might see to it for yourself your own tendency. Whether you're more likely to blame and get indignant, to dump your anger on whoever you becomes the repository of it in that moment. Or more likely to to burn inwardly with it and, not, and, and yet not be able to, to do anything else for it to get stuck. Or more likely to bolt, to split, to, to switch, to not even let yourself get close to what seems like the threat of that. And we'll, ex- uh, we'll go on in a minute to explore just why it's so threatening. And of course, whatever style you might have, you can probably find, you can trace back how that came to be in terms of your history. Helpful to reflect, you know, how was anger expressed in your family? 
It may be that you inherited a style of uh, a lot of repression of emotion. Parents that were afraid of or unable to uh, express their frustration or anger. It may be that you grew up with all too, with very much a strong expression of that, where anger was uh, easily and often expressed and maybe spilled over into physical uh, expression. And of course, that can lead to either either the style of learning, we either the learned style of expressing through that a lot of acting out of anger. Or the kind of uh, reaction to that, where one becomes afraid of anger because one's seen what it can do, where it can go. And if you're in any kind of uh, long-term relationship, that's a great place to see what your style is. around expressing or not expressing feeling or not feeling acting out or not some it's the it's for some of us it's the more uh, obvious acting out the more hot uh, boiling angry kind of negativity and for others it's more the kind of cold cutting um, disdainful you know, where we can communicate all our venom with just a look. Some of us it's more blustery and then it's done. Some of us it's more sulky and like a... Some of us it's more like a thunderstorm, right? Quickly done. Some of us it's more like just an ominous black cloud that hangs over the house for some days. Some very, there's a very famous few lines of the Buddha from the Dhammapada where he says um, he beat me he robbed me he insulted me he abused me repeat these thoughts to yourself and you live in hatred he beat me he robbed me he insulted me he abused me Abandon these thoughts and live in love. In this world, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred ceases by love alone. This is an eternal law. And those lines, or little bits of those lines, are trotted out often. Sometimes in these ghastly little sort of um, those things that people put on Facebook, you know, endlessly sweet little lines. There's so many of them. Most of them are by Rumi, it seems. But things of the Buddha: hatred is never ceases by hatred. Hatred by love alone. Nice. But actually, the implications of that statement are um, far-reaching. It's a tall order. And we might see for ourselves in our own, what I was calling earlier, our own hard luck story. 
which we've all got one of, the, our own version of that, of those thoughts. He beat me, he robbed me, he insulted me, he abused me. Our own rhetoric of blame and confusion and negativity and regret and remorse and self-pity around what he did, what she said. The, the way cast as the victim of our own story. We respond with the endless replaying of the, those, the, of the past in order to justify the fact that I feel self-pitiful, resentful, angry, etc., etc. So these words of the Buddha, inspiring though they are, they invite us to really look and see how attached are you to your hard luck story? How willing are you to give it up? And of course, that's easier said than done. The giving up of our hard luck story or the, the willingness to really track our anger, resentment, etc., the willingness to notice when we find ourselves replaying that past scenario. That's a, that's a, that's a, an ongoing practice. And sometimes it may be that uh, that sense of difficulty refers quite directly to the past. It may be as you're sitting and listening to this that you can that it's very clear to you different scenarios or stories, events from your history, circumstances that get triggered by that kind of language. Maybe places where you go to in your family background, in your recent history, in your relationships, in the places and people and events and circumstances that feel like they've hurt you in some way. And that as you go there, that you get the opportunity to notice the, what the Buddha's called the repeating of those thoughts, the holding on to that material. And sometimes it's not so much that our, that, 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 that our anger or resentment or difficulty gets stimulated directly by the memory of the past, but it gets stimulated by some other catalyst that refers to that. Like me and the guy with the, you know, the, his shoes outside the monastery. And some small thing that happens, we find ourselves having an out-of-proportion reaction. And there's a clue in there. Because the, whatever the thing is that's triggered it, the reaction is a familiar one. And yet, as I say, it's not that we can just, it's not that we can just abandon those thoughts. We can't just decide, it doesn't work at all, just decide to not be angry anymore. And we have to be willing to let ourselves feel it. 
letting our, let ourselves feel the, the burn of anger the heat like, uh, like the friend being made to sit in his hut and put all his clothes on right and sit and be, be as angry as you like be sit, oh, all day the teacher said to you all day sit there put all your layers on sit in the steamy sun close the windows contemplate your anger so now not only has all the past accumulated historical anger there now he's got the outrage at his teacher telling him to go and sit there all day in the monastery where I lived for some time in Thailand there was a, a monk had drawn his beautiful, and some of you have maybe heard me mention this before, had drawn this big, maybe three metres high mural on one of the walls of the monastery of, of great uh, flames, and big, uh, fire, and in the centre of the flames a huge green wild-looking serpent coming out like this from the flames with big yellow eyes and its forked tongue sticking out in the middle of the flames. <laughs> and sitting on the edge of the forked tongue was a picture of a monk. And it was a very potent image to me as I, and it was in the first months of my practice, and as I wrestled with my own uh, just difficulty to be with myself, as I wrestled with my own hard luck story, as I wrestled with my own, you know, the, the kind of the, the pull towards wanting to blame what was wrong rather than just feel my own restless, reactive, confused heart. When we let ourselves drop the detail and the story, the what he did, the what she said, we have an opportunity just to come to the way the, the outrage, the fury, the anger, the whatever, is burning in us and to let it burn. To let it burn itself up. Or when it's the, the cold icy quality of hate you know the, the queen in Narnia ice queen that's a good uh, she's a very good personification of that kind of you know where, where anger is hot and boiling ang- uh, hatred is cold and icy it doesn't flare up and bluster like anger it just it's cutting And to let ourselves sit in that rather frozen, still, hateful place. Not to work it, not to work it out on the level of what he said or what she did. But because when we inhabit that negativity, when we dare to let it burn itself up, in the case of the anger, or we learn to when we learn to sit in that icy, still righteousness of hatred, they start to purify themselves into something important, something necessary. When the all the when we let ourselves drop all the personal referencing of it when it stops being all about me and how right I am or how wronged I've been when it stops being when we 
let go of the, all the stuff about uh, how we could make it right or how it should be different or how we're going to get our own back or whatever it is. Then we're left with something kind of elemental. And we find that the heat, the dynamism, the, the volcano of anger refines into something strong and clear. A capacity to sit, like that monk on the, foot, on the snake's tongue, a capacity to sit in experience. A capacity for steadiness. A capacity for fearlessness. We need that capacity to really explore life in the way we're doing. It's a tall order. To be willing to drop (coughs) our hard luck story, it's not easy. We need that strength, that ground, that steadiness. If your style is more the the icy, cold, hateful kind of resentment, negativity, then sitting in that, it tends to refine into a kind of pristine stillness. A silence. A depth. A genuine refuge from the the intensity and the rhetoric and the narrative of those familiar storylines. So let yourself... uh, sit in the heat of anger to let yourself sit like that monk on the snake's tongue to to let those the what he did and what she said he beat me he abused me he robbed me he insulted me etc to let that stuff get burned up in the fire of anger it means that we're then actually more able to get appropriately angry there are things in this world that are worth being angry about. But they're not what's happened to me. That gets us into a self-defeating, painful loop, the loop of our hard luck story. So this, this heat, this potency that refines into strength, Martin Luther King Jr. had a good word for it. He called it soul force. And at the time of the civil rights movement, being met with so much hatred, being met with so much violence against the civil rights movement, and asked how he, would, uh, how he could cope with all of that, he said, we meet it with soul force. <laughs> 
And those examples, whether it's Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement, or whether it's uh, Gandhi, or whether it's uh, other inspirational figures that in the face of adversity and hatred and violence have been able to stand up and say no, to stand up for what's unjust, what's discriminatory, what's cruel, what's exploitative, what's oppressive. That's where the fire in our belly is needed. And I think it's a cause for concern that we don't see very much of that. I don't see that very much at the moment in the world and there's a lot of cause for concern. I wonder where it is. I wonder where the hell it is in the Buddhist world. And those voices that do come forth with rather a strength, with quite a fire in the belly, with a strong social conscience, with a wish to, with a willing, with a willingness to stand up and say the unpalatable, to shake the boat, to point to oppression and inequality and injustice. We tend to find those voices quite threatening. Buddhist establishment finds those voices quite threatening. So it turns out that it might be a very great service to ourselves to be willing to meet this unglamorous anger, resentment, hatred, resistance. But it turns out actually it might be much bigger than that, much more than just a service to ourselves. But it might be a service to the world we engage in. A willingness to stand up for what's important. A willingness to challenge the status quo where it needs challenging. And you don't need me to tell you where it needs challenging. But whatever uh, those forces of oppression and inequality and uh, injustice that figures have... Fa- that that people have found the courage to stand against. We live in a world that certainly needs some real belly-fired resistance. Buddha once called his teachings the lion's roar. That's not nicey-nicey. That's not uh, passive. That's not just being with things so that I can have some comfortable abiding. Actually, it comes from a willingness. And it's a lot about what being on retreat is, is about. A willingness to be uncomfortable. A willingness to be uncomfortable in the service of freedom. To be uncomfortable in the service of love to be uncomfortable in the service of an authentic meeting with life, a fearless meeting with life. What will that freedom look like in your life? I don't know, but I'd really like you to find out.
may it be so friends for the benefit of each one of you of all of us and of all of us everywhere thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate